Justin Taylor, a historian and church historian and writer, tells the story of that familiar carol we just sang, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He writes, the lyrics originate from the poem Christmas Bells, which Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote on Christmas Day in 1863. But the original was not a feel-good song, but a song of grief. Longfellow's wife had died in a fire in 1860, and on December 1st, 1863, the widower received the news that his eldest son, 19-year-old Charlie, had been nearly paralyzed by a gunshot wound fighting in the Union in the Civil War. It was with the background, this background, that he penned the poem about the dissonance between Christmas bells that were singing, that he heard singing in the distance, peace on earth, and the world around him of, of injustice and violence, ending the song or the poem with the hope of an eschatological peace. Longfellow wrote in his poem, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and, and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. How does Christmas, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Son of God, connect with Calvary? How, does, how do we reconcile the evil and injustice and immorality that we see in this world we recognize it in our lives, we see it, whether it be on the news or in our own lives, we feel injustice and evil and wickedness. How is it that a good and loving God allows these things to happen? Innocent dying. How? Well, friends, it is through the cross of Christ that we see God deal with injustice and wickedness and immorality. We want to think about that in God's Word today in Mark's Gospel. So if I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are glad you were here. We have been spending the last year and a half actually just considering what Mark has to say about Jesus. And we're just kind of in that next text, and by God's providence, oh, it fits so well to Christmas Day, doesn't it? As we think about who this son is. Who is the son of David? We're going to be reading in Mark chapter 12 and verse 35. If you don't have a Bible and you're using one of the pew Bibles, that's going to be page 849. Um, we just hope you in, in, will just open that and look. You'll be rather bored if you're not looking at the Bible, because I really don't have much to say other than what God has to say in this passage. And so we're just going to be looking at what God has to say to us in chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. Let so me begin reading in 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it that he's his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. 
And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Well, as we've been considering Mark's gospel, this passage really rounds out a section in Mark's gospel where Jesus has been confronted by the religious establishment there in Jerusalem. Jesus is here in about 33, 35 AD, and Jesus there is being confronted in Jerusalem. Not only is he being confronted, but as we know in the narrative, this is Jesus' final week of ministry. He is going to die in just three days. In fact, as we consider next week and the weeks ahead, Jesus will be wrapping up much of his teaching, getting his disciples prepared for the day of his crucifixion. And Jesus here is finishing this, this bout, this battle, if you will, with the religious leaders. But it's also in the midst of this battle that there is this bigger misunderstanding that is really going on, a messianic misunderstanding about really who the Messiah was going to be. During Judaism, during this time, there was great confusion about what the Old Testament really had to say about the Messiah. One of the things that was particularly important to the Jewish people during this time was freedom from their Roman oppressors. So the Jews had been under, since Alexander the Great, had been sort of under some sort of quasi-outside government since that time. And so they had always been ruled by an outside people. And during this time of Jesus' ministry, they were ruled by the Romans. And the Romans had kind of set up some puppet government there in Jerusalem. And the people were frustrated by it. They were furious by it. Because one, they had to pay taxes to Caesar. They had to give their money. So just like you hate giving your money to the IRS. So they hated giving their money to, the, to Rome. But also they hated, to, they hated, they hated declaring Caesar Lord. And so one of the things that there was this tension in them, they wanted to be freed from their Roman oppressors. And so like the word of faith teachers of our day, cherry pick their favorite passages and distort them to say what they want them to say. Well, so the scribes did in Jesus's day. They took Old Testament passages about the the, the Messiah being a, a great warrior king, about the Messiah coming and defeating his enemies. Like the, like the psalm we read today in Psalm 110. Did you hear how, how David wrote of, of a king that was going to come from his lineage that would defeat every enemy of God? Oh, they would take those passages and they would lift them up and say, yes, we can't wait for the Messiah to come. Oh, when Jesus came and he said, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a warrior king yet. I'm I'm not coming to defeat God's physical enemies yet. No, what I've come to do is defeat the spiritual enemies. I've came to defeat Satan on the cross. I've come to die, not to be victorious. So they were confused about what Jesus was saying. And, And much of what we've seen in Mark's gospel week after week has been Jesus really telling his disciples and others not to really spread the word that he's the Messiah. 
And the reason why, and for us it seems weird, like, you know, we're supposed to go tell the gospel, we're supposed to tell Jesus, tell about Jesus. Well, the reason why was because of all of this misunderstanding about who Jesus was. Jesus wanted to get right who he was. He didn't want other people telling others who he was. He wanted to do that himself. And so we arrive at this passage where Jesus is really blowing up the views of the scribes and the teaching of the scribes. And so that's the context in which we find ourselves in this passage. So, so what does it really mean? What, what is Jesus trying to teach us? Well, hopefully this summary will help and we'll kind of unfold this summary uh, in, this, in our time this morning. I think the point that Jesus is making in this passage is that Jesus is not merely, not merely, the human descendant of David, but is, the, is David's exalted Lord, the eternal Son of God, who came to defeat all of God's enemies so that you, so that you might be delivered from tyranny of sin and receive adoption as children of God. Say that again. Jesus is not merely... Not only the, the descendant of David, he is that, but he is more than that. He is David's exalted Lord, the eternal Son of God, who came to defeat all of God's enemies so that you and I might be delivered from Satan and sin and might receive adoption in the Sonship of Christ. So we want to give our time to think about. So if you'll look at our passage, you'll see... Easily organized around two points. First, Jesus is teaching. First, Jesus is teaching about himself in verses 35 and through 37. And then in verses 38 through 40, Jesus is teaching about his enemies. Jesus is teaching about his enemies. So let's consider first, in these first three verses, Jesus is teaching about himself. Observe what Jesus says. Mark tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple. Uh, Jesus regularly taught in the temple. This is not an ad, uh, you know, sort of a, a weird thing. This is normal. Jesus would go. Jesus was respected by even non-believing people. Jesus was respected as a teacher, as we've seen. Even the scribes call him teacher, rabbi. Uh, he was respected by the people around him. They were intrigued if you will, by what he said. It rung differently in their ears as they heard Jesus speak. And so we see that Jesus was teaching. Now, if you consider last week, Jesus was dealing with the scribes. The scribes were the, the religious experts. They were the experts on the law. They were the, they were the folks that you would go to if you had a question about the Bible. Just like I much get questions often. What, what does the Bible mean here? Or what does this mean? Or, or where we go to maybe a commentary to understand what the Bible means about a particular passage. They would go to a scribe and the scribes would teach them. And so Jesus here is dealing with the same group of people. They were religious leaders. They were people that were well respected and people that, that, that others listened to. And they had a teaching. They taught people that the son, that the Messiah was the son of David. As you read that, you're like, well, yeah, he's the son of David. We know that, right? That, that, that's what, something that we're even thinking about today. It's Christmas. So that's what we, we heard, right? 
He's born in the city of David, right? He's the son of David born in Bethlehem. But what is happening here is that the scribes were teaching that, that the Messiah was merely the son of David. Or only the son of David. And Jesus is sort of saying, look, that passage you're quoting, let's, let's, go, let's go to another one. And so what they were quoting was sort of 1 Samuel 7. We'll look at that in a moment. But what we see is that Jesus then points them to Psalm 110 and says, wait a minute, David says something about his descendant that seems to conflict with what you're saying. And so what we notice here then in verse 36 is that Jesus quotes for us Psalm 110 and verse 1. And again, as I said earlier, it's the most quoted in the New Testament. It's sort of that messianic psalm that really points to who Jesus is and what this Messiah has come to do. And I want you to notice something here. This is sort of a, something I just wanted to point out to you. Look with me at verse 36. and Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. And then he quotes Psalm 110. Friend, I just wonder if you're not a Christian this morning and you doubt the Bible, you doubt its truthfulness. What did Jesus think about the Bible? Jesus seemed to think that it was inspired by God. He says that David, by the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus seemed to think that the Old Testament was inspired by God. That God actually wrote it by the Spirit of God. Just a side point as we think about this passage. And so what, what's the point? What do we see? Well, we see first in this passage that, that Jesus is, or that the Messiah is the son of David. That he's the son of David. Jesus is not denying his humanity here. So just to be very clear, Jesus does not mean to deny that he's a human being. Clearly, he thought himself to be created. Second Samuel, verse 7 and 12, says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is God's word to David, that one day there will be a son that comes from him. Well, this is what we celebrate, as I've said. And, and in Matthew 1.17, Matthew tells us, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, or to Jesus, 14 generations. And from that genealogy in Matthew 1, we see that Jesus was a descendant of King David. That he was David's son. Or as Paul writes in first in Romans 1 concerning his son, that is God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus here is not seeking to deny his humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. But what Jesus is trying to expand on is that misunderstanding that he was merely human. That the Messiah would be merely a human being. And we're going to think about in just a moment sort of what that implication means. What, what does it really matter, this distinction? 
Let's go on. The passage Jesus goes on to tell us. He asked this question. Notice the question he has. How, how can the scribes say that the Christ is merely, and I think that would be helpful to apply that there, merely the son of David? And then Jesus goes to Psalm 110. So let's look at what Psalm, Psalm 110 says. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the Lord, Yahweh, said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. The Lord, a special name, a covenant name, the covenant keeping God, said to, the, to my Lord, meaning David's Lord. The eternal God said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, if you just have a cursory understanding of the Old Testament, particularly the Ten Commandments, in the first commandment, uh, we see very clearly that God does not share his throne with anyone, does he? God does not care about sharing power. God is sovereign over the nations. The Lord, our sovereign Lord, as the NIV translates this passage, the sovereign Lord, he's the ruler of the universe, but yet he invites David's Lord, this, this person that David refers to as Lord, he invites him to look what he does, to sit at his right hand. The right hand is, is often a metaphor for the hand of power. When God worked, He worked by His right hand of power. It was where God's authority was stretched out. It was God's hand. And then notice, until I, that is Yahweh, put your enemies under your feet. The eternal God is going to help this, this David's Lord. And then look at Jesus. He interprets it for us. You didn't really have to do all of that. Look at what Jesus says in verse 37. David himself, he emphasizes David is saying this, David himself calls him Lord. Again, that name, that name. Hebrews wouldn't even have written that. Jews would not even written that name, Lord. The covenant name of God was sacred to them. Jesus applies it to himself. What Jesus is screaming through these words is that David's son is David's Lord. The Son of God has come in Jesus. And this is what the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interpret these verses to mean. Consider Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It is no mistake that Paul and the other New Testament writers use that word Christos the same word Jesus uses here in Aramaic to mean Lord. There's no mistake. No confusion. They're not, they're not just saying, oh, Jesus is like sort of an exalted, you know, sort of a fatherly, respected authority figure. We should honor him. He's saying, I'm God. And I deserve your worship. What the Jews misunderstood was that the Messiah coming meant that God was coming. This is what is so radical and so amazing about John 
That's what's so beautiful about what John is saying at the beginning of his, of his epistle. And most people struggle. They're like, hey, you know, he doesn't have a birth narrative in there. It's because what he's saying is that Jesus didn't begin there. He's the eternal Son of God. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. Word there means tabernacle. Just as God tabernacled, just as God set up shop in the middle of the camp of Israel, so God has done it again through His Son, Jesus Christ. Or as the author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down where? At the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is no mistake that John in his visions in, in Revelation paints a, a vivid picture of the Lamb sitting beside the throne of God and the elders worshiping. How do you, if you do not believe that Jesus is God's Son, reconcile the fact that those elders, that those angels, are worshiping Jesus in Revelation? And that God does nothing about it? Oh no, it is because He is God. He is the Lord and this passage reveals to us the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is the, the Lord exalted. He is the Sovereign One. He is the One who reigns supreme. And that one day, all of His enemies, what they misunderstood that what Jesus did in His first coming, well, He's going to do in His second coming. What they wanted Him to do then, He will do one day in His return when He will vindicate His name. And He will defeat all of His enemies. Let's look more at Mark's gospel about the divinity of Jesus. That's what Mark has been getting on about the whole time. That's what he's been really pushing us towards the whole time. He's, he's been reminding his readers there in Rome. So, so if you're just sort of jumping in with us, Mark is writing this gospel to Christians living in first century Rome. Where they would have regularly seen Caesar regularly heard the chants, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Curios, Caesar is Curios, Caesar is Curios. They would have heard those cries regularly in their ears, but here Jesus is declaring that He is Lord. These are the Christians that He is writing to in His Gospel. He is reminding them throughout. So let's just look really quickly. Oh, this will be good for you, I pray. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Turn there if you will. We're just going to move through Mark real quick. I hope this helps us. I think it will. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark writes at the very beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You wonder what Mark thought about Jesus? He thought Him to be the Son of God. Son of God. I wonder what God thought about Jesus. Well, Mark tells us, look with me in verse 11, at Jesus' baptism in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Moving on to ver chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2 and verse 20. 
I'm sorry, verse 28. I'm kidding. Jesus here declares himself to be the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is Lord, supreme authority even of the Sabbath. And all throughout these passages, we see demons bowing before Jesus as Lord. Demons running scared. We see miracle after miracle declaring this Lordship of Christ over nature, over creation. And the disciples cry out, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Oh, who is this man? He tells us in Mark chapter 8 and verse 29. Jesus asks his disciples, remember that familiar passage? Hey, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying at 7-Eleven? Around the water coolers at work, what are they saying? But who do people say that I am? You are the Christ. In the other Gospels, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going on, Jesus says in verse 31, and He began to teach them that the Son of Man... Son of man must suffer. Going up to verse 38 in chapter 8, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus thought himself to be the Son of God. Not just a Son, but the Son of God. So either Jesus is confused or perhaps we're confused. Going on to chapter 10 and verse 45, they're just like little breadcrumbs, isn't it, aren't they? Oh, blind Bartimaeus. Verse, 40, verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So we hear, we hear right there that those words. I want you to look at one other passage, two other passages. Verse four, chapter 14. Two more. There's many more. I Just for time's sake, I'm not looking at them all. Oh, I just pray you just read through Mark and not see that Mark and Jesus thought that Jesus was God. Verse 14, verse 61. Jesus before the high priest. 61, verse 14. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? See, they won't even say God's name. Are you the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Ego me, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at where? The right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in typical Markian book-ended fashion, he began in verse 1 of chapter 1 with Jesus is the Son of God. And hear these words from a Gentile centurion in chapter 15 and verse 39. And when the centurion... <laughs> He's a, he's a wicked old Gentile. He, he killed people for a living. Who stood facing Jesus saw that in the, this way he breathed his last and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. 
know about you, but I think Mark thought that Jesus was God. I think Jesus thought himself, and I believe that we ought to think that as well. Jesus is God. If you ever want to know what God looks like, if you want to see God, look nowhere else than to Jesus. As the, as the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of his letter, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's not, not like God, he, he is the exact imprint of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And, and then hear it again. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. There seems to be, in the mind of Jesus, in the mind of the writers of the Bible, this connection between Jesus' identity and where Jesus sits eternally. That is, that Jesus' position points to his identity. The fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in all of these passages seems to lead us to believe that Jesus is something special. So what does it matter for our lives? As we consider Jesus' lordship and his sonship, these just have two profound implications for our lives. First, if Jesus is Lord then it implies that we must submit to him. Jesus isn't Lord of just whoever wants to be his disciple. No, in all of those passages, it says that Jesus is Lord of the universe, the cosmos. Yet every knee shall bow. He doesn't mean just like, you know, maybe kind of like every knee, but not every knee. No, no, it means every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That seems to be all and inclusive and universal. That though there is not a universal confession of Jesus as Lord, there is a universal bowing before His Lordship. And this morning, you may not be living under the Lordship of Christ, at least not seemingly in your life. But as Christians, we make it clear that submitting to Jesus submits to Him as our Lord. And we're reminded in this passage that confessing Jesus will always cost us. Just as it costs that, that first century reader to confess that Caesar was not Lord, that Jesus was Lord, would have cost them their life as it did the apostles. But see, we live in a, a country that's free and we can confess really whatever we want to confess. We can say whatever we want to say. We, we can get away with it. But when it will cost you your job to say, no, I'm going to follow what Jesus has to say versus what you have to say. Or maybe perhaps during this Christmas season, you know what it feels like to confess Jesus and have family forsake you. You know what it feels like to be around friends and family who mock you and laugh at you for your childish faith. You believe in miracles. You believe in the virgin birth. I mean, come on. You believe in those things? That's silly stuff. That's children's tales and stories. Oh, declaring Jesus as Lord will always cost us. But secondly, a second implication in this passage that 
is that our adoption as children of God is dependent on Jesus' own sonship. So when Paul says that you're an heir of all things, an heir with Christ, it kind of implies that Jesus has to be an heir of something. That Jesus has to be a son of God in order to be included in Jesus' inheritance. So that is, if Jesus isn't God's son, then there's really no inheritance, therefore you don't get an inheritance. You're illegitimate just as much as Jesus is. But if Jesus is the legitimate son of God, and he is, then so our sonship is tied to him. Our receiving his adoption into the family of God is so dependent upon this passage as to deny this passage is to deny our own sonship. This is why Jesus is confronting this wrong understanding of this Messiah. So brothers and sisters, we must lay what we've considered to our hearts. Walter Meyer once wrote, If Christ is not divine, then lay the book away, and every blessed faith resign, that has so long been yours and mine, though many a trying day. Forget the place of bended knee, and dream no more of worlds to be. If Christ is not divine, go seal again the tomb. Take down the cross, redemption sign. Quench all the stars of hope that shine, and let us turn and travel on across the night that knows no dawn. Mayer wrote that. If there's no cross. If Christ is divine, then what's the point? Amen. If Jesus is not the Son of God, if He's not the Sovereign Lord of the universe, well, we're really kind of silly to be here. We're wasting our time. Across the night that knows no dawn. Well, let's look secondly and quickly. This will not be as long. The second point. Jesus is teaching about his enemies. We've seen clearly that Jesus is coming again to vindicate and to destroy his enemies, and the scribes are those. These religious leaders who have rejected Jesus, these these people of God, the Jewish people, those who God had, had called out of darkness, who God had purposed to save, they have rejected him. They will receive, Jesus says, the greater condemnation. And what we see in this passage is is when vanity rules. Do you see what Jesus says? He He warns, beware of the scribes. Why? They like to walk around in long robes. They like to wear clothes that make them look important and powerful. They like to wear their Sunday best every day. They like to show it off. They were show-offs. They like to, to really show off how, how important they were. They like to be greeted in the market. Hey, you should greet me. I'm important. You should say hi to me. I'm, I'm who you should be thinking about when you come to the store, when you go shopping. You should look for me and greet me. Jesus says they love to have the best seats in the synagogues. They, they like to sit right up front, right? You know, the... Not the back row Baptists, right? But no, the front row Pharisees, right? Yeah, yeah, they wanted to sit up front. They wanted to look like they were, they, they knew everything. They wanted to look like they were close to God and God's people. They loved places of honor at feast. They wanted to sit at the best table. They wanted to sit at, at you know, the head table. That's where they always wanted. Implied in this is that they thought they were entitled to these things. 
I wonder how often they went to these places and they kind of were disappointed. Like, you know, they didn't get the best seats or they didn't get that place of honor. But they, they were entitled to those things. They thought that they deserved those things. They, they got all dressed up so that people could notice them. They looked around like, look at me. He says they devoured widows' houses. A confusing statement. Perhaps what they did was was they would use those widows' resources. They would eat them up, meaning that they would use the resources of those widows. They would defraud them. And for pretense, make long prayers. For no point, Jesus says, they would pray really long prayers. Oh, friends, you've heard that, right? Right? The King James prayer. Right? Thou God. Right? The one who prays just to be heard by the people. Not to be heard by God. I wonder, is that us sometimes? Do we guard our hearts from the vanity that we see here? Living for temporal. Isn't that where it seems that these people's minds were? The temporary? They wanted temporary freedom from their oppressors. They wanted temporary praise from people. Vanity is fleeting, isn't it? Popularity is fleeting. Oh, you may have been the coolest person in high school and be a complete dork today, right? I mean, right? That's true. We run after things that, that we don't care about in 10 years. Oh, how often we do this. And so Jesus exhorts us to guard our hearts from such things. We're going to think more about this next week in, in, in really just giving ourselves is, is really the next passage. Really, this is a, is a connection. I want to point out something that Jesus says here in, this, in these final words. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Other translations basically said that, that this God will do to them. Like for God's just like got a special little, little day for them. Hey, God is warming up for them. Friends, the Bible is so clear that teachers of God's Word are held accountable. This is why Paul regularly exhorts Timothy. And James exhorts his hearers. Hey, and, T- and Paul exhorts Titus, don't encourage people to teach unless they're willing to count the cost. Teachers of the Bible are held accountable to a greater level. So whether you teach children in children's church or or adults in Sunday school or your own children or grandchildren about Jesus, know that that exercise will be held accountable before God. Even the way we live our lives is a living testimony. And friends, how many stories can we tell about teachers who have led people astray from the truth of God and His Word? I've known many liberal teachers who have undermined people's faith in God, seeking to doubt the the inspiration of Scripture, the validity of God's Word. Many have led, and, and that's what we see in this passage, and we're reminded and warned to beware. Those who do such things will receive God's special attention 
in judgment. That Jesus will have victory over his enemies. To be sure of that. And that's the hope that we have today. That's the hope that one day, as Longfellow wrote in that song, one day the injustice will be over. That justice will reign eternally. Friends, we considered in this text that Jesus is not merely the Son of God. Or excuse me, the Son of Man, David's descendant. But is David's Lord, the eternal Son of God. But friends, the question still remains for you today and for me. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Who is Jesus? Friend, this is the question you must answer. And it has eternal consequences for your soul. Let's pray. Eternal God of the universe. Sovereign Lord of our life. Oh God, there is much that we could think about, about your sovereign lordship. Much to consider that you are the Son of God. Lord, I pray today that we as your people would trust anew in Christ. Lord, we would submit our lives and our thinking, our minds actions, our wills, our plans to your Lordship. God, I pray that if a unbeliever, a, a self-consciously non-Christian would just hear well the Gospel and lay aside their pride and declare Jesus is Lord. God, this is our prayer today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude our time this morning by singing.